Well, good morning to you. Colossians chapter 4 is where we are at this morning. Colossians chapter 4, four page 835 in our seat Bibles, church Bibles. And in just a minute, I'm going to begin reading from verses 2 to 6. And this morning, our concern is going to be verses 2, 3, and 4. 2, 3, and 4. If you're new to West Cohasset, welcome. My name is Joe Franzone, and I serve here as a pastor. Glad that you're here. This is the first of two services. So as uh, Dale reminded us, there'll be a second service and then afterwards a, a meal with um, Marissa. So let's hear the word of the Lord. Verse 2, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I'm in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Well, let's pray together and seek the help that we need. God and Father, as we come to your word now, we thank you that we do not stand right with you on the basis of our personal performance but only on the basis of the infinite righteousness of Jesus Christ. So, Father, we thank you for your daily mercies, and we thank you that many of us completely belong to you, that we are your servants. And so this morning, because we're your servants, we give humble thanks to you for all the goodness and loving kindness you've given to us and to all men and women everywhere. We thank you for our creation, our preservation, and the blessings of life. But above everything, we thank you for your immeasurable love, your free grace and the redemption of this world by our King, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our only hope ever in life and in death. Therefore, Father, this morning, please work in us a a proper sense of how large your mercies are, what it means that God should come and die for sin-filled people like me. And Father, please do these things in order that we would put into view your praise, not only with our lips, but with our lives, the giving up of our lives to your service, to prayer, walking in holiness, meekness, and righteousness, and believing your word in the days that you've given. And Father, we can only do this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. With you, Father, and with the Holy Spirit, be all glory and honor and praise. Now, Father, for Jesus' sake, Give us the ability to listen and to speak and to learn how and what we ought to pray. Keep us mindful that some water and some plant, the waterer or the planter are nothing, God, but only you who makes things grow. And so we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. If your Bible is open, you can see at the end of chapter 3, that was last time we were together, we learned that because Jesus Christ is our King, The line of thinking that came to the Christian in their employment is that every Christian employee and every Christian employer is to have, if you would, something on the order of everything I do, I do for you. And the everything is our work if we are an employee and the everything is the provision and care for our workers if we are an employer. That was what Paul was teaching. And of course, the you and the everything I do for you is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. That's verse 23 of chapter 3. Do you see it there? Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart because you're working for the Lord, not for men or not for women for that matter. Verse 24b, it is the Lord you are serving 
And we said that was to be our encouragement. Everything we do in the public square is for Christ. It makes Christ known. There's a kind of an evangelistic ring to our work. And because of this, there's verse 25 tells us that no good deed will ever go unrewarded. Because God, in the end, the Lord Jesus Christ will judge. And if you're thinking, that's absolutely terrific news. Everything that we do in our employment matters for God. And that was equally our warning, right? No bad deed will ever go unjudged. And if you're thinking that's absolutely terrifying in a good way, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So again, everything matters. And to me, it is very, very inspiring. So, so do it right, Joe, and treat it right, Joe, and treat them right, and be fair. Why? Well, because everything we do, employer, everything we do, employee, we do it for Christ. Again, everything good will be rewarded. Everything bad will be judged. Well, that was last time. And so as we come to these verses this time, as we think about prayer, we can say it like this. Prayer absolutely concerns the glory of God. I hope we learn that by the time our, uh, our time is done this morning. So we would say it like this. Yes, it is true. Everything we do, we do it for you, God. And it's equally true. Everything that we need must come through prayer to you, God. And that which we must pray for is instructed by you, God. So as we think about prayer, we know that the prayer is the Christian's expression of their absolute dependence on God for everything. Now we've said it here many, many times and we'll say it again. We are dependent on God for everything. And we express that dependence through prayer in Jesus' name. Not prayer in the generic sense, upward of 90% of people in America would say they would pray, but only in the low 30% of people say, this is according to the Times report and the Pew report 2010, only 30% say those prayers in Christ's name. So the kind of prayer that is spoken of here and in other places in our New Testament is this. Prayer is offering up our desires to God in the name of Christ with the help of the Holy Spirit, with confession of sin and thankful acknowledgement of His mercies. I'm going to say that again. Prayer, the kind of prayer that Paul is talking about here, is offering up our desires to God in the name of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of His mercies. Now, if you're paying attention, you're saying that sounds like a catechism question and answer. It is. It's question number 98 of the Westminster Confession. But it's all true Take that definition that I just gave you, run it alongside the Lord's Prayer, which is our example in everything, and what you will find is that's exactly how Jesus prayed. And prayer then is absolutely crucial to everything that makes the Christian life the Christian life. So the great preacher of the 20th century, 20th century yes, Martin Lloyd-Jones, said this, above all, and this I regard as the most important of all, always respond to every impulse to pray. Such a call to prayer must never be regarded as a distraction. Always respond to it immediately and thank God if it happens frequently. J. Oswald Sanders in his book, Spiritual Leadership, says this, Prayer is the Christian's vital breath and native air. But a strange paradox, most of us find it hard to pray. We do not naturally delight in drawing near to God. We pay lip service to it as we typically find time to do what we deem necessary but still cannot find the time to pray. 
And John Piper in another court, a quote, this was from a sermon he preached January 9th, the year 2000. He says to his congregation, he's warning them on the dangers of letting the best part of your prayer time be in the car on the way to work. And he's warning them, don't let that be the way. And he says this, you can't really mature with God on the run, fitting God into the cracks of your day. One more quote. This is from John Bunyan, Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan. You can do more than pray after you've prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. And I would say to you, by my own personal experience, if I have felt a low need for prayer, more than likely there is a largeness, in fact, definitely, there's a largeness in my disobedience to God's revealed will given in the Scripture. In other words, if I am not praying, it means I'm not caring, and I am not doing that which matters to God. And in my case, the, the, the reason is quite simple. The work, God's revealed will for His people, in your case, and the God-given mission, given in the Scripture, that work, that work that we'll give an account for at the end of the age is too big and it's too hard for us to do on our own. 2 Corinthians 2.16, who is sufficient for these things? And unless we understand this, we will never, never really pray. And beyond that, Jesus Christ is too glorious to enter into his service, to enter into his labor in our own strength and in our own wisdom. No one is that fantastic. And knowing this then, we keep the focus on where it must be, focusing on Jesus Christ, his faithfulness, his ability to provide, give vision, unity, love. And here's the crucial one, as we'll learn this morning, the turning of men and women and young people's hearts and lives to Jesus Christ. Because that's the context here. Paul, this is not just jumping into prayer. These verses are calling for prayer of gospel expansion. God's name being hallowed in the kingdom that he would ever expand. This is John Stott's commentary. These verses are not a loose sequence of a few additional admonitions, but a tightly constructed section given to the Christian and outlined their duty to spread the gospel. This duty begins in prayer. This is the descriptive life under the rule of Christ, turning the believer's attention outwards in order that they might recognize their responsibility to make the truth of the gospel known. And then it answers the realistic question because when we watch like, Screens like we just watched and hear what we just heard by way of Marissa, you, you feel like, okay, there's a whole lot to do. Okay, so what do, you, what do you do? Just feel bad and feel good about feeling bad? No. What can the Christian do to make the outsider hear of Jesus Christ? Verses 2 to 4, they can talk to God about people. And that's where our focus is going to be this morning. They can talk to God about people and verses 5 to 6, they can talk to people about God. They can talk to God about people, prayer, they can talk to people about God evangelism. So as we sit here this morning, part, just, just right on the beginning of the Christmas season, 2013, with all the opportunities that are given to us, because of that season, God grant to us the dependence here and direction. Dependence, which we reveal by prayer. Direction, which comes through the scriptures itself. So, so as we move on to the, to the first point, pray with all your might about all that you need to. Pray with all your might about all that you need to, but pray with all your might about what God has said to. Again, especially as we enter into the holiday season and, and all spared, we begin a new year. So because of this, you can see there, if your Bibles are open, verse 2, devote. 
you have an English Standard Version, the word is continue steadfastly. This is our first heading, the attitude of the Christian in prayer. When we go to God, how are we to go? What is our attitude, our, our manner, our mindset? Well, let this mind be in you. First of all, it comes by way of devotion. Devote yourself to prayer. Now, the word that Paul uses has the idea of consistent, courageous persistence. This is what the Puritans would call storming the mercy seat. So you apply yourself wholeheartedly, consistently in prayer. Prayer is then a maintained privilege. And, and remember this. Prayer in Jesus' name was won for us by Jesus' suffering and death at Calvary. The only reason why we have access to God is because Jesus Christ, by his suffering and death, won for us that access to God. So it can't be ignored. It is vital. We are to be steadfast in it, and it's called then to be consistent. And right there, if we're thinking, that's where the trouble is. For many of us, prayer is not consistent, but if we were going to be honest, it is inconsistent. It goes in great ebbs and flows. There are urges and problems which release our prayers. There are doubts and good times which withhold our prayers, making them seem either unnecessary or we throw our hands up in the air and say ineffective. And Paul says, no, no, this is your charge. This is written in the imperative. It means it's a command. Paul says, give your full attention, devote yourself prayer. So if someone asks the question, what does devotion in prayer look like? The answer would be the kind of thing that we would discover when we look to Jesus Christ, who is our example in everything. And we can look to the gospel record then, and then we can look at the book of Acts and see how the church did it. So let's look at Christ for a moment. Luke chapter 5, verse 16, Jesus often withdrew to a lonely place and prayed. In other words, this was the devoted pattern of our Savior's life. He often went to places by himself, to pray. Mark 1.35, very early in the morning, Jesus got up and he went to a solitary place and he prayed. And again, the language there, this was his pattern. Early in the morning, Jesus got up, he got out of bed. Bed is a very dangerous place to pray. I think we all understand that. And he went to another place, a solitary place, and he prayed. And possibly the two most difficult moments of his life, the first before the choosing of the twelve, Jesus prayed all night to his Father in heaven for guidance. So, I don't want you to think about praying all night unless, unless you want to, but I just want you to think about this. He who knows all things, Jesus Christ, determined to pray through the night in the choosing of the twelve. And second, secondly, the night before Jesus' trial and crucifixion, he was praying in a state of anxiety, and many of us understand how difficult that is. If you've ever been there, you know what I'm talking about. It's hard, awfully hard to pray in a state of anxiety. But Jesus, Mark's gospel, falling to the ground and feeling like he was going to die. Matthew's gospel, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. What do we find our Savior doing? Devoting himself to prayer. He was praying. The physical demands were there. He understood that. We understand that. And they were large in his case. But the need to pray drove Jesus to devoted prayer. And that's Jesus. Now what about the early church? Well, the early church was following Jesus Christ's example. And they were devoted to prayer. And as you read the early chapters of Acts, in fact, if you did that this, this afternoon, it'd take you about three minutes, read the first two chapters of Acts, count how many times they were praying, you'd be surprised how many times the churches were together in praying. Acts chapter 1, verse 14, the church was born in prayer. They all joined together consistently in prayer. 
So, that, so they were not little prayer groups. They were not at home on their own praying. Rather, the church joined together with one another in prayer. Acts 2.42. It says that the church was born in prayer. This is, this is, uh, Coloss- Colossians, uh, this is Acts 2.42. They devoted themselves, and that's the same word that Paul uses in Colossians. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Those are the four marks of a church, by the way. Apostles' teaching, devotion to one another, devotion to the sacraments, and devotion to pray. And the language that is written there implies inclusiveness. The whole church got together to pray. So we can't be in any doubt about the primacy of prayer, and we can't be in any doubt, listen carefully please, about the necessity of prayer meetings. That's a given in the New Testament. So in the same way, our our private life will eventually show up in our public living. I mean, nothing unrepentant remains hidden. hidden. A meaningful, private prayer life will eventually reveal itself in seeing the great value of corporate prayer. That's what happened to the church in Acts. So the people say, well, we can pray on our own. We can pray at home, in our own bedrooms, in our own prayer closets. And yes, yes, of course you can. And we thank God for that. But just think with me for a moment. Would it work at home, say in a family of four, each of us praying all by ourselves? So I'm in the family room. Our children are in each of their rooms. And my wife is in the bedroom. All praying. Good. Okay. But prayer becomes much more meaningful and much more helpful and much more biblical when the whole family comes together, all four of us, in one room, praying in Jesus' name, Jesus' way. Now, I was just shocked when I looked at these statistics. I had to go check them, double-check them. And the statistics that I found that says basically 90% of Christian couples do not pray together consistently. And it's the same with families. Now, loved ones, will you please Listen to me this morning. I understand that you can pray on your own. Go, go, go. Pray, pray, pray. But please, do not ignore praying together. Do not ignore prayer meetings. It's God's pattern for God's church. It is of a great, great necessity. I'm going to give you one personal example. I remember as a small boy, the midweek evening prayer meetings at our church. And I would see, I can remember watching saints, and they seemed like old people, but they probably were my age, some of them. And they would be crying out to God in prayer. And I remember sometimes they would put their arm around me and begin to pray for me, and I just couldn't believe it. And I can't even tell you what that would do, what it did for me, specifically as a young child. And it was really easy to see that what they were doing was important. Now, I don't know this to be true, but I haven't been able to talk to my parents about this, but I can almost remember in my mind's eye, I need to get their, their okay on this, and this is true. I can remember people praying for me for, to go into pastoral ministry, even as a little kid. I can remember, in fact, in my mind, there's an older gentleman in a three-piece suit that put his arms around me and prayed that prayer. And so they would be there what seemed like all night. It was only probably about an hour. But as a young boy, I got to receive the result of God's people praying together. Because only, there's, there's, only God can do what God can do, right? So from an early age, I understood that God's church is about prayer. It's not so much about personality or a program or just personal. You know, as in, I'm going to make my family great here. We're going to be outstanding winners wasn't those things that made the church go and grow. Because if it was, then that would be the beginning of the end. But devoted prayer was the key. 
It was the first thing. It was the necessary thing. Why was all the advancing happening? Well, because people were devoting themselves to prayer. Secondly then, our attitude, Paul says, is to be watchful. Again, verse 2, keep alert. The, the Greek word there is Gregorian. This is interesting. The Gregorian calendar is what we use now. And if you notice, the reason why that calendar was created is that we could pay attention to two big dates on the Christian calendar, one Christmas and one Easter. So that calendar was created mainly because the Christian community could keep attention to the things, be watchful of those two especially important Christian celebrations. So again, this means keep alert, keep your things, keep your mind on things above. Do not be sleepy-minded. That's a literal meaning of the word. So what does it mean to be sleepy-minded? Well, to be sleepy-minded is not just falling asleep when we pray. You'll remember that the twelve fell asleep when they prayed with Christ at his greatest need. Our flesh is very, very weak. You don't think it is? You have much to learn. But it's more than this. Being sleepy-minded has to do with one. The Christian being too much absorbed in the affairs of this age. Too much concerned about the affairs of their personal life. That they take their eyes off Jesus Christ. And they take their eyes off Jesus Christ's mission. So their prayers in essence become smaller. So that Christ's commands and Christ's coming is a surprise and a fear and an inconvenience. And it's not a welcome anticipation, and it's not something that will continue transforming us in our lives, the very framework of our lives. So, for example, our prayers become small and slow, and they come tr- become traditional in the sense of status quo. So we keep saying the same things over and over again, whether it be private or public. Now, some of those things we need to say over and over again, but the prayers that, that we need to be watched for expands because as we watch the world, things change. So secondly then, sleepy-mindedness is not only too much absorbed in the affairs of this age and the affairs of the self, it's also when we're not watching. We're not thinking Christian. We're not being alert to that which must be prayed for. So for your own encouragement, the elders of this congregation this past Tuesday evening in our prayer time, they jumped on a prayer request given by one of us of a family of this congregation in great need of God's power. And to their credit, every one of them had something to say about the situation. And that means that they were being watchful over those entrusted to God's care. So our our prayer became much more exact for that family because your elders were being watchful. You think with me. Remember Jesus' words, life worries, life riches, life's pleasures, the deceitfulness of wealth. What do they do? They make the word, in other words, they make prayer unfruitful, slow, sluggish, no growth. Remember Jesus' other words, be watchful and be ready for the return, alert. And loved ones, the lazy haziness of this casual contemporary culture does not lend itself into this frame of mind. This is a sleepy age in the things of Jesus Christ. Therefore, remember, be watchful so we might pray against the unholy trinity. What is the unholy trinity? I bet you know the flesh, the world, and the devil. The flesh, sin remaining in us, attempting to suppress God's God's truth for us. The world, which organizes itself with no meaningful reference to God whatsoever except for funerals and catastrophes and meals, right? 
That's when people typically turn to God. Funerals, catastrophes, and meals. Why? Because the world organizes itself with no meaningful reference to God. And then there's the devil who hates all of what God loves and leads people by the nose to the fires of hell. He's the God of this age, the Bible says. He blinds people of this world so that all they can see is the house, the holiday, the job, the relationships, the kid, the financials, and so on. And that's all they see. Therefore, this attitude of watchfulness in our prayer is is not just some kind of emotional search, but a strong, thinking, watchful exercise. 1 Peter 4, 7, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert. Same word here. Be watchful and self-controlled so that you might pray. And Peter would understand that, right? Peter would understand firsthand experience of not being watchful and not being prayerful because Peter blew it on the night Jesus Christ was betrayed because Peter betrayed Christ. So when you see all the lonely people that we're going to learn at the beginning of this year, all spared and Lord willing, that we need to go out and talk to, when you see all the lonely people, when you see all the people headed to hell, how can we not be watchful? How can we not be prayerful? The end of all things is near. Be alert and pray. The Christian attitude in prayer, what is it? Devotion, watchfulness. You'll see the third word there at the end of verse, verse 2, thankful. Thankfulness, the prevailing mood of the devoted, watchful, and we'll add thinking Christian. This is Paul's prevailing mood. If you look at verses 15 to 17 and you count the number of times that Paul says, be thankful or give thanks, it's, it's amazing. Give thanks in everything. Prayer cannot exist without thanks, can it? I mean, it would be very strange to me to really ask God for what we need if we really haven't thanked God for what He's already given. Now, as we think about what God has done for us in Christ, it is the mark of a bad and spoiled child of God when they find it hard to say thank you to God. Or an unthankful Christian is probably in a continuous state of grumpiness and dissatisfaction. And we need to move on. But before we move on to our final, final point, Paul is not a, a do as I say, not as I do kind of fellow, is he? I mean, if you look at chapter 1, verse 9 of Colossians, he says this, ever since I heard about you, I haven't stopped praying for you. Is that devotion? Absolutely. If you look just across the page, chapter 4, verse 12, about Epaphras, he, was, he is always wrestling in prayer for you. Always. I haven't stopped praying for you. In other words, we're going to make some personal application here, personal pastoral application. There is no place for me as your pastor to say these things to you this morning if they are not becoming more and more true in my life. So you have a prayerless church and a prayerless pastor and a prayerless eldership, save for the mercy of God, puts that church in a countless state of risk or saying foolish words or, and this to me is the worst one, or you keep doing things that mean nothing, that mean absolutely nothing for the kingdom of God. You're just spinning your wheels and patting yourselves on the back thinking you're absolutely fantastic. So that we dare not be a walking contradiction, partly truth and partly fiction in this matter of prayer. The attitude of the Christian in prayer, devotion, 
Watchfulness, thankfulness. The request of the Christian in prayer. Can you see it there in verses 3 and 4? I absolutely love it when God tells us exactly what to do. It's, just, it's a great grace that he pray for us too. That God may open a door for us for our message. So that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I'm in chains. Pray that I may declare, declare it clearly as I should. Ephesians 6 is in, in chains. Now that is a fantastic request. It comes down to two things, right? God, open the door for the preaching of the gospel. I mean, just think about that as as you think about your own prayers. Open the door for the preaching of the gospel and God give absolute clarity to the preacher of the gospel. Open the doors to the preaching of the gospel, absolute clarity to the preacher of the gospel. Now as you think about the former, God, open the doors for the message of the gospel, does it come to you as a bit of surprise that Paul, who is writing this prayer, is in prison? So he's in prison and he doesn't ask God or doesn't ask the church there to open the doors of the prison cell. But what does he say? Open the doors for the preaching of the gospel. Now as I think about this, I really, really like him for this. I, I get this, Right? Northern Minnesota is not Tahiti, is it? What's the priority? The gospel is the priority. It was the gospel that got Paul in prison. And most of us would admit, if we were in his place, we, not, we may not be thinking that way, but you see, that is it, isn't it? He was thinking. He was thinking biblically. The situation of his imprisonment calls for a special wisdom. Acts chapter 14, we must go through many trials to enter the kingdom of heaven. Acts 9, Paul was told, he's going to be told, you will suffer horribly for the kingdom of God. Now this is, I think, one of the great issues of our day. Let's do things for Jesus Christ, but arrange them so that there's no pain, there's no inconvenience, and when, and when pain comes and when inconvenience comes, pray your way out of it or talk yourself out of it. However, God's word gives us a better mind. 1 Peter 4, 1. This is the Phillips translation. Since Christ had to suffer physically for you, you must fortify yourself with the same inner attitude that he had. You must realize that to be dead to sin inevitably means pain. And you should not therefore spend the rest of your time here on earthly indulging your physical and sensual nature, but in doing the will of God. And, and, and that's the great danger of a place like this. There are so many good times to be had that when bad times come, when difficulties come, we don't do what James 1 said to do. Remember James 1? When all kinds of trials and temptations crowd into your lives, my brothers and sisters, don't resent them as intruders, but welcome them as friends. God is at work. You see, loved ones, what Paul, why, why Paul was supposedly stuck in prison, here's a list of the things that, some of the things that were done. He wrote Colossians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Philemon. He was a- able to evangelize a mob that opposed his message. Felix, Drusilla, Herod, Agrippa, all high Roman authorities heard the gospel preached. The Roman imperial guard, Caesar's household, all heard the gospel preached. Conversions of those who served in Caesar's household and a whole host of Christians were emboldened. This is Philippians 1, to preach the gospel fearlessly because Paul was in prison. And Paul says it like this, the gospel was advanced. Thank God that Paul was in prison. So as we think about this, Paul's prayer request for his missionary team is not for personal benefit, but for gospel advancement. 
Paul's prayer request is not overpopulated, saturated with self, but it's succinctly gospel. And many would do well to pay attention to that pattern. And Paul's concern in his request is because that's his calling. Take the gospel to the Gentile world. So he says, God, oh, pray that God will open the door for the message because God's the only one that can open them. And it's no different for me or anyone like me. God is the only one that can open a person's heart to receive him. That's a fact. Another fact, God is the only one to open doors so that he might be received at all. That's another fact. But the key, the key to this gospel issue is verse 4. Pray that I proclaim it clearly as I should. Phanero is the Greek word. It means pray that Christ is fully preached so clearly that when people hear the gospel, they will understand clearly. This is what a yes to Christ means. And this is what a no to Christ means. Now, loved ones, when you do that, you'll understand why Paul prays that. Pray that I will proclaim it clearly as I should. No fudging, no tricks, no incomplete thoughts. No, you know what I'm talking about to people. They don't know. They do not know. The gospel preached clearly put Paul in prison. He's in chains because of the gospel. And because of that, there's always a temptation to shrink to the task. Because the gospel is a very, very objectionable message. It's disturbing. It's edgy. The second time I ever preached the gospel on the streets of Austin, Texas, people spat in my face and they gut in my face. And I'm pretty sure someone pushed me. There will always be a pushback when the genuine gospel is clearly preached. No one will push back when they hear, God can fix everything for you. He can make it terrific. He can make it better. And that's it. No one will push back. But they will push back when you say that you have offended a holy God like I have. And your sin and his wrath is upon you. But please, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. It's the only way. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for you and so on. You'll get a pushback for that. Let me close with this. John Stott on the occasion of his 70th birthday was preaching to the congregation. This is what he said to him. The "The gospel is a disturbing and edgy message. And he said, the temptation is as you get older... You want things to be safe and comfortable. And he said to the congregation, will you please pray for me that I keep my gospel disturbing and edgy? That's verse 4. Pray that I proclaim it clearly as I should no matter what. Congregation, Will you please pray that God will open the door here for the message of Jesus Christ? Will you pray that more doors will be opened to preach Jesus Christ? Will you please pray for me that I will proclaim it clearly and completely as I should? And will you pray specifically as the Christmas season approaches? Will you pray all those things? And will you pray that the devil will not keep people's eyes blind? But their sin will be exposed. The, the doors of their heart will be open for the gospel. And they will say yes to Christ. And that they will live a Christian life afterwards. Will you do that? For there is no hope whatsoever beyond the mercy of God for anything exceptional to happen by way of conversions if God is not called on in prayer to do what only God can do. 
open doors, open hearts, give clarity, and the given gospel to see people to faith to Jesus Christ. Therein lies your responsibility. Pray, pray, pray. Thank you for your attention. Let's bow together. Our God and Father, we pray that you would open a door for our message so that we might proclaim the mystery of Christ. Pray that I might proclaim it clearly as I should. Now, may the love of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be our abiding portion both this day and every day till Christ returns or calls us home. Amen.